Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks is just two weeks from this Saturday. The years following the attacks brought the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the Patriot Act, drone attacks, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, domestic surveillance, hate crimes against Muslims, and changes in politics, policy, and law that are still evolving. And then Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Many wonder how our country's standing in the world has changed and whether American democracy is failing or being destroyed. Karen J. Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, has written extensively on democracy and the practices introduced in the name of security. And in her latest book, Subtle Tools, the Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, she examines how changes in government and legal practices since 9-11 are tied to a decline in democracy. Her book is published by Princeton University Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Karen Greenberg to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You identify four subtle tools. What are they? (laughs) Thank you for asking. Um, The tools are, and and I sort of present them in this order in the book, uh, the use of imprecise language in crafting laws and in identifying what policies are. And we can talk about that. We will. We'll talk about all of them. Yes. Uh, the second one is uh, calculated and widespread secrecy. Uh, probably no surprise to any of the listeners. The third one is um, imprecision in the authorities and distinctions between government agencies and departments. And the fourth one is the bypassing of laws and norms in the name of national security. And what makes them subtle? (laughs) What makes them subtle is that the one that's the least subtle, I think, is secrecy. But what makes them subtle is that whenever we talk about fixing what went awry in the wake of 9-11 and the creation of the security state, we talk about changing the policies. And my point is that it's not the policies or the laws, it was how they were done that we need to address. And so what's subtle is um, noticing that how imprecise the laws were, how big they were, how it intentionally fuzzy the authorities that were outlined were, how the limits on powers were left, the edges very frayed and undefined. And so what makes them subtle is that no one noticed. They noticed instead what these tools created, what they crafted. And does subtlety insulate them from legal challenges or from public or press oversight? Yes. And to this day, it still has. Only one that's had some kind of um, recognition, and I argue not enough and not in all of its forms at all, is um, secrecy. Um, And that's been done at a sort of very uh, basic level, not at the level of complexity and subtlety that it actually took place. You write that, I'm quoting you, within hours of the collapse of the Twin Towers, the edifice of American democracy began to fracture as well. So was that, did that have something to do with the facilitation of uh, and creation of, of subtle tools? Absolutely. By, by you know, with, within that day, uh, the White House had crafted its, its version of what became the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which was for the invasion of Afghanistan to get bin Laden and al-Qaeda. 
But in that, what the White House asked for were vast, expansive powers that did not actually get turned into the AUMF. Nevertheless, the AUMF, did, as it passed, did not name an enemy, did not have geographical limits or definitions, did not have a temporal end in mind. This is contrary to other authorizations for force and to declarations of war. It was just a open pass to do whatever they wanted, if whatever the president wanted, um, should he feel that it was necessary to prevent another uh, 9-11. And uh, the then director of the CIA, George Tenet, announced that all the rules have changed. And, uh, uh, and and George W. Bush launched what he called the war on terror. Isn't the very notion of a war on terror vague? Yes, thank you for pointing that out. It, it was vague. Um, we called it a war without authorizing a war. We, you know, um, and then uh, the idea of having it on a, a concept or for some an ideology um, was intent. But I'm argue that it was intentionally vague. If they had specified it, it would have limited their ability year after year to expand the battlefield, to expand the number of groups they could go after, um, and to expand the kinds of um, uses of force uh, that we've seen over the past uh, two decades. On the other hand, wasn't there overwhelming public support for an aggressive response after the attacks? Why was subtlety needed when the public was so galvanized for, for action? So they were galvanized for uh, action, but not. But what kind of action would be taken? They were looking to their leaders to provide, or we were looking to our leaders to provide. And what happened here was that the the attraction of taking whatever powers you wanted that was going to be approved by the public that this shock of 9-11 made that very clear um, doesn't mean that it was okay. It means that it was poor leadership. You know, it's hard to restrain yourself when you're in power. We learn this over and over again. It's hard to say, you know, I don't want to use these levers of power that are I now see are available or that are being handed to me by a prior administration. But um, the fact that the United that, that the citizenry said that's okay makes sense in its in its earliest iteration. Over time. There could have been more questioning. There was some questioning by civil liberties groups, by human rights groups, by a number of legal um, NGOs. Um, but it wasn't enough to stop this momentum from continuing. The Department of Homeland Security was created in 2002. And you write that the Department of Homeland Security was a, quote, troublemaker's dream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, what they did was they took agencies and offices from a across um, the organization of government, from energy, from transportation, from treasury, from defense, etc. And they put them into this one agency. Now, this had been talked about before. It was um, a kind of a restructuring of the executive branch in a way? It was, it was not kind of, it was a restructuring. And there was a lot of negotiation about what should go in and what shouldn't go in. Just as, a, as an interesting footnote, what didn't go in was Fauci's office, Dr. Fauci's office, which they wanted to go in in the original proposal. And, um, and, and there was such protest about mixing up you know, Homeland Security with that office that it was left separate uh, and kept out. But just, you know, play that forward. The um, the mess of authorities, the mess of agendas, not not to mention the fact that it was created in the name of countering terrorism. This was going to be our major counterterrorism institution. But the FBI 
the central institution uh, at home for fighting terrorism was not included. And so from the very beginning, there was a confusion about what its mission was. And if you watch what happens with DHS over the years, the funding um, and, and the priorities that it has, now it's our largest law enforcement entity in the country. Mm. If you look at what it does, what does it do? It fortifies the border, particularly the southern border, um, and is used for many other things. Um, you know, I, I go, I have a whole chapter in the book about DHS and how it's used against Black, Black Lives Matter protests. Um, it was, it was always a mess. Its chain of command, um, command structure was a mess. Its mission was a mess. We saw it early with uh, Hurricane Katrina and the response to Hurricane Katrina, which was a disaster, um, leading to, to, to deaths. Um, and the, question is, you know, what do we do now after 20 years? To me, the question is with with uh, Homeland Security, I think we keep it, but we have to be very mindful of the fact that confusion is not helpful to serving the American people. Isn't uh, its name the use of a subtle tool? Wasn't the use of the word homeland rare in the United States before 9-11? <laughs> yes. There's a, thank you for mentioning that. There, a lot of the book um, alludes to language to the misuse of language or the intentional use of language to, to confuse other things than what you're actually talking about, obviously. And there were a number of people in Congress and out of Congress who were extremely upset by the use of the word homeland, some referring to it, you know, having sort of a Heimat, having the, the National Socialist, you know, resonance, um, others to the fact that we just, that's not a name we use. Now we use it. Um, you know, easily. It's our own. We own it um, in a very different context than what than than Germany. But still, it was it was a leap to take that word on. Do some of the subtle tools predate the 9-11 attacks? Had the a foundation yes. already been laid before 9-11 for tools honed or created after 9-11? Yes and no. I would say the goals of the of the subtle tools had been identified well before 9-11. The idea of giving more power to the president in as many ways as possible, sort of violating a sense of checks and balances um, and um, and, you know, a balance between the branches of government. Um, I would say that that had been uh, something that had been of concern repeatedly throughout recent American history. Um, many uh, legal theorists in the government, many officials in the government um, had during, for example, the Reagan years, embraced this concept of a unitary executive, a powerful executive in the executive branch and a, and a powerful president at the head of it. One of those people was William Barr, who one of his statements is the president is the executive. Um, but he really meant the president is the, is the government. And, um, when you read through more of, or of his speeches and, and writings. And so, yes, it had existed before. Certainly secrecy had existed before. Certainly secrecy, uh, in foreign affairs and, um, a mixture of covert actions and public statements, um, uh, had existed time and time again in American history. We had seen this. Um, but 
the subtle tools allowed it to be brought into place in a way that was more powerful, more ingrained, more institutionalized, and I argue more lasting and then in the time of, let's say, Nixon, which many people refer to as the sort of beginning of the kind of misbehavior that we see emerge with Donald Trump, who is, you know, part of the focus of the book. What about the real beginnings? Are there features of the United States Constitution that have made the development of subtle tools easier? Because the founders expressed concerns over an excess of democracy. Yeah, but the founders actually also recognized things about the subtle tools from the very beginning. You know, I spent a lot of time, you know, talking about the need for precision. You know, if one, if you, the need for precision in crafting laws, you have to say the fact that the authorization to go into Afghanistan did not name an enemy left it open for a tremendous amount of ex- expansive, aggressive misuse. Um, the same thing with the Patriot Act, the same thing with the Department of Homeland Security, as you've pointed out. The founders were very aware of this over and over again. They talk about the importance of enumerating powers, of putting boundaries around things, of precision. So some things they had in mind, some things they didn't have in mind. They did think that there could be che- there needed to be checks on um, the abuse of power. They did think there needed to be a sense of checks and balances in the three branches of government. But I don't think they could have foreseen. And this is why I really like this question. You know, I don't think they could have foreseen some of the safeguards that needed to be put in. You know, um, all these centuries later. I mean, there. If you really think about what went wrong, what's the oversight mechanism for insisting that Congress be specific in the laws it passes? We have a court system that that can and does um, rule against laws that have are too vague. Um, there's a concept of uh, void for vagueness. We have that, but it has to be at an earlier stage. There has to be a sense of accountability for laws that are just an open-ended invitation to for whoever is being authorized to do something, um, in many cases in the war on terror, the president, um, to do what they want. And so, you know, um, I, I think that's very important. I think the other thing that's interesting is that the executive um, branch is a more complicated branch than we give it credit for or that we have that most uh, pe- experts talk about. So the, the the integrity of each executive department is something that is is important and needs to be identified in sort of its own checks and balances way. So, for example, um, the White House and we've seen we've seen this in recent months. What's the relationship between the White House and the uh, Department of Justice. There has to be some kind of independence on the part of the Department of Justice. That's sort of, that is something that came uh, over the course of time. It was articulated not um, as, as much by the founders as by later iterations of creating the Department of Justice as we know it today. And people pointed that out when William Barr seemed to become an advocate for Donald Trump. Correct. But, you know, John Ashcroft was an advocate for um, for um, for George Bush. And so was Alberto Gonzalez. So it wasn't new with Barr. Barr just took it to extremes and and Barr took it to extremes on the home front that um, whereas a lot of what um, not all, but a lot of what went on in the Bush years also had to do with with uh, foreign affairs. So, yes, it's not 
Yes, that's what I'm saying. It's it, these kinds of that's the bureaucratic imprecision that I think needs to be cleaned up. And the same thing between the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. These are two agencies that work very closely together. What you've seen is a, a, a massive a growth of law enforcement over these two agencies without any real rethinking of what was meant, what needs to be done, and, and should there be some kind of separation between these two, these two agencies. I'm talking with Karen J. Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law. Uh, her book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, published by Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You examine the assassination of Iranian General Qasem uh, Soleimani uh, in a 2002 drone strike. It made headlines around the world. So how was it subtle? (laughs) No, (laughs) what was done was, as I always say, the policies themselves, the events themselves are not subtle. It's how how they're done. So how Soleimani was done was subtle um, in in the following ways. Um, So and and this is a violation of of procedure, uh, sort of uh, puts together a number of the subtle tools at the same time. Um, Normally, when something first of all, let me just say that the 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 decision to uh, kill some a member of a of a state organization, it being Iran, you know, a top general of Iran, is not the same thing as attacking or killing a non-state actor, which is what the authorizations for the use of force were were about. At least the two thousand and one one in particular. The um, the Trump administration, very interestingly, after this attack, wasn't sure what the authorization for the attack was. First, they would cite the 2002 authorization to go into Iraq because he was killed in um, Baghdad. Sometimes they would cite the 2001 authorization. Sometimes they would cite the commander in chief power, which is where they finally came out. But it was back and forth over a lot of different issues, which told you one thing that was obvious anyway. The procedural um, norm of making a decision of this magnitude to take out somebody this close to the top of another state, um, Iran, um, did not follow the kind of procedural norms that should be followed in any kind of vibrant uh, government and any kind of vibrant democracy. The decision was made uh, at Mar-a-Lago. There were a couple people there. We can assume that there were a couple of meetings online, although we don't have confirmation about a lot of it. We do know that justice and the intelligence authorities were contacted. But there's no sense that this happened in a way that followed the kind of responsible, well-thought-out procedures that need to come before this kind of major intervention um, on the world stage. And so... The subtle tool is the is the bypassing of norms. No, the norm, the, yeah. Was a ahead. distinction made when the Obama administration used drones to attack uh, two American citizens abroad, uh, no, Anwar al Awlaki and his son Abdul Rahman? Yeah, that was and in so, 2011. So, yeah, so the Awlaki um, the Awlaki episode um, in in um, in the Obama administration is um, is also uses the subtle tools. I would, I would say it uses different subtle tools. There you have them following procedure, establishing norms. But what did those norms do? They 
first of all, did what has been done since the beginning of the war on terror, which is they took language and they misused it in a way that was helpful to their their ability to have more power to do what they wanted. And in particular, the two terms that they um, misused were the same two terms that were then redefined in the similar way in the Soleimani killing. And those terms were um, imminence. What is it, you know, the idea that self-defense, the president can authorize um, an attack in self-defense of the nation if there is an imminent threat. Obama, in the case of Anwar al-Awlaki, um, and his Justice Department redefine the idea of imminence as something not in your face about to happen, but something that given bad actors and what they intended could someday happen. And there was a likelihood that they were going to do that. That is very different than the, than the definition, of the, the strict definition of imminence. And the other word that was redefined uh, was assassination. You know, was this an assassination or not? You're very right in what you were suggesting by your question. These two ideas of self-defense and a broadened sense of imminence um, pertained as well, um, according to uh, Trump administration officials, to the killing of General uh, Soleimani. Now, I get the feeling at times that some of Trump's advisors and the officials in his government, like William Barr, Steve Bannon, tended to make trouble. So uh, did that uh, lead them to use the subtle tools that you're writing about? Um, what do you mean intended to make trouble? No, <laughs> still seems to be make, <laughs> want to make trouble. Uh, they, I guess what intended- I'm asking is if Trump... Uh, uh, did Trump just take things to a greater extreme or did yes. he alter the way the executive branch does things in a deeper way? But both. He was consistent with he saw these subtle tools lying there on the table, not taken off the table by his predecessor, um, Barack Obama, who did try to pull back on a number of these these tools intentionally and and vocally, um, but did not succeed um, to the extent needed. Um, he took them and he used them to a greater extent. So let's take, for example, secrecy. From the beginning of the war on terror, there was a, a sense that it was important to have things be secret because we didn't want our enemies to, to show our hands. We didn't want to show our hands in a way that our enemies could use it. And that, but what actually happened was that we kept, we as a nation kept things secret that were really about violating the law. For example, um, saying that torture was legal and could be used. Um, for example, um, some of the premises of um, setting up uh, of Guantanamo. What Trump did was to come in and still ask for authorizations for things that may or may not have been um, illegal, like the killing of uh, uh, so. Uh, Qasem Soleimani by the Justice Department. But Trump took it. Maybe we shouldn't create the record. If we don't cre- create the record, then who's going to find out what we did? How are, we, how are they going to know? It won't be there. And so, as John Bolton reported in his book and others have, have reported, there was a sense that notes should not be taken at certain meetings. The same thing with the border, by the way. The idea of not um, keeping records of children and families when they were separated was a decision. And if you don't keep the records, then how do you reconstitute these families, which, you know, has been such an uphill uh, struggle. Well, what so, was the goal uh, there to yes, not yes. to destroy no, these families? That's right. And what they what they found was that you could take secrecy to a 
to a new level by not creating documents, by not allowing testimony, for example, when um, in the obstruction of justice um, investigation for, you know, blocking White House officials from testifying uh, to Congress. And they were they were adept at um, using the courts to sort of back down, just like the courts had backed down numerous times in um, in war on terror situations, deferring to the um, executive, the White House and the president. Aren't the courts supposed to be our defender against these subtle tools? Yes. No. Okay. Yeah. No, oh. yes, they are. They are supposed to be. But they, do, but they don't seem to always work that way. It depends on who's in the majority. It depends. That it, it depends on this erosion of the courts as a protector of the Constitution and the law um, has suffered greatly uh, since the war. Since the war on terror, the uh, courts are, have been, you know, politicized. As we know, um, they are, uh, you know, so, sort of. Uh, they've been um, infiltrated by, um, you know, under Trump by many members of the Federalist Society, as the Federalist Society was the lead um, nominator for federal judge positions. But it preceded that, this sort of trend of it's one thing to have people of a certain ideology intentionally put in these places. It's another thing for the courts to say, look, when it comes to national security, this is just not our role. We have to trust the president. And I mean, this raises a whole other issue that I think we need to talk about, which is what happened in the crisis of 9-11 and afterwards was a sort of acquiescence. And this gets to an earlier point you brought up um, of the of the citizenry to trust me, government, you know, trust your officials. They know what they're doing. They know what the intelligence is. They know what the enemy is. They know what to do. And the fact is that was not an accurate perception that there needs to be oversight all the time, no matter what the threat is, um, and no matter how fearful uh, the country is made to feel. Um, the irony of all of this is that all of these powers that were built up within the government to keep us safer, whether it was homeland security, whether it was intelligence agency um, agendas, whether it was you know law enforcement abroad, whether it was the use of the military abroad, didn't seem to to create the sense of security and stability at home that that they were created and premised upon doing. And I think that's, you know, something we also have to reckon with as a culture. Why are we still so um, um, traumatized by the threat of 9-11? Why haven't we've been able to feel that we're secure and why, what does that have to do with the message the government's sending and what is the intention of that? Well, you, you brought up secrecy again, even before nine 11, didn't many court decisions and other laws go unpublished, making them secret or, or nearly so. Uh, Yes. There's, there's always been. And and even today, didn't deputy uh, assistant attorney general, well, well, no, uh, didn't Barack Obama try to keep the uh, secret the extent of global and domestic surveillance during his administration? Yes. And, and uh, we've had just recently um, Joe Biden and Merrick Garland seeking to keep secret most of the Barr era memos uh, and whether Donald Trump obstru- uh, obstructed the Russia inquiry. Yeah, no, uh, secrecy is is 
way too much an accepted part of the fabric of American governance, and it is dangerous. Um, Barack Obama tried to signal a, a recognition of that when he came into office and issued a memorandum about the need for more transparency and a, his pledge uh, and commitment to creating um, structures and processes to ensure more transparency. And the fact is that um, the the, the uh, Obama administration denied even more FOIA requests than his predecessor George Bush had uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, um, and that there the the clutching um, trend of of holding on to to secrets um, has persisted. It persisted during the Obama administration um, in terms of the torture report that Sen- Senator Feinstein's um, committee put together. Well, there was the earlier. Uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Yu, who's now a Berkeley law professor, uh, he drafted several memos on the use of torture during the Bush administration, and none of them have been made public. Well, no, we have a lot of oh, them. They have? have? Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. We have John Yu's memos. We have, and and um, we don't, I wouldn't say we have everything, but we definitely have enough to know that they authorized torture, that they they redefined the position of the United States vis-a-vis international law, that they um, that they uh, created that under the Bush administration they created you know uh, sort of an attack on civil liberties both in terms of uh, privacy, surveillance, um, and more. Um, that uh, we, we know there. We don't have a lot of surprises about this. That doesn't mean we've seen everything, but we know enough. What we haven't seen um, is what those memos from the Trump administration. We saw one recently relevant to the uh, Qasem Soleimani um, strike. It was referred to as as the second of two. This one was after the strike. Um, I would love to see what other memos the Trump uh, administration has from uh the Office of Legal Counsel, which is where John Yu was and the department inside of justice that produces advice uh, for the president and the executive branch. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Is not dead yet, but the dangers far from past. Yes, democracy is not dead yet, but the dangers far from past. We're back with Karen J. Greenberg, who's written Subtle Tools The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War and Terror to Donald Trump. In his, it's published by Princeton University Press. In the, his first uh, inaugural address 40 years ago, Ronald Reagan said that government is the problem. If Republicans believe that government is the problem, why shouldn't they try to undermine it? Um, because it's uh, not honest. If you want to undermine it, then you should, in full transparency, get new laws um, passed or come up with um, agreed upon changes in the structures of institutions. Um, But to do it in a kind of surreptitious um, way that, that isn't about um, buy-in or democratic process is, is quite another thing I would argue. Well, it's our focus in this conversation has been on the federal government. If government is, is a problem as Republicans claim are local governments 
also problems and are subtle tools also used at the state and local level? Is there less oversight and worse record keeping at the state and local level? You know, it's a really good question, um, and I, it's not something that I, I really can answer in any kind of, you know, less, you know, way that's comprehensive. But I will say that one of the things that did come up repeatedly when it came to um, the the use of uh, of the government of the federal government to try to impede upon state powers um, were were um, local governments asking themselves. What can we do here that redefines who we are in our locality and that gives us the powers we need to have? I mean, you saw this most clearly in Portland um, during the summer of 2020 in response to the protests there, the Black Lives Matter protests, which were quite intense and were, you know, about the federal government sending camouflaged armed um, DHS agents mostly from the border, to um, Portland, to uh, unnamed, unlabeled, <laughs> to uh, unidentified, to um, counter these uh, these uh, protesters. And it was very interesting to see the local government, both at the uh, city and state level, uh, respond, because they wanted peace in their streets, but they wanted to do it themselves. And for them to do that, what they needed to do was to negotiate with the federal government, but they also needed to rely on the courts, and the courts stepped up. The courts basically said, you know, um, they they issued injunctions restraining the power of, of federal troops, um, federal agents, um, and and eventually the, the federal um, uh, guards and federal agents uh, had to pull back. They didn't pull back as much as they had initially agreed to, but they had to pull back. And so that's where you see sort of a checks and balances and contesting of powers, um, having some kind of procedural uh, um, uh, honesty and relevance. Uh, so, um, and a way of saying, look, you just can't come in here and again, to imprecision and vagueness, not identify yourselves, not tell us you're coming, um, use force and violate this, um, in this imprecision, violate standards and norms about the relationship between the federal government and the local government. And so, you know, I, I would say the Portland authorities rose to the occasion. Wasn't the Patriot Act passed just a month or two before the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2002? Did that act lay the foundation for use of any of the tools that you examine? Yeah. So it, it's the Patriot Act is, an, is, is such an interesting document. I love its name. It said USA Patriot stood for uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Thank you for not making me have to say that. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Um, look, it, it, the, the name does give you a sense of, of, of how much motivation was on the side of the government to do what it wanted. And there were a number of authorities that were passed in the Patriot Act and in other acts that are related to the Patriot Act that have to do with, um, you know, that have to do with the kind of imprecision we're talking about. For one thing, to your point earlier, it doesn't define terrorism, even though it's about terrorism or terrorist, even though it's 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 there to to be able to prosecute um, uh, terrorists. Um, remember that, or let's here as a reminder that John Ashcroft in decide, in defining what the Patriot Act 
is, was and why it was necessary, introduced it as a new and preventive paradigm. In other words, law enforcement's job was going to be prevention, not finding a criminal um, after the fact, but finding a criminal before the fact. And in this criminality, they're talking about terrorists. And so there were a number of things that were done across law enforcement that were extremely broad and extremely imprecise. The most, um, perhaps the most central one was the uh, material support statutes, that what was material support for a terrorist? And negotiating that territory about was material support buying a bomb, trying to detonate a bomb, was material support going online and downloading information about terrorist groups. All of this became sort of fodder for law enforcement to look at in their attempts to prevent another attack. And what you see after the Patriot Act is a proliferation of authorities, of of, um, policies, many of them secret, that enabled government to um, surveil Americans in ways that were unprecedented um, and that to this day, some of the egregious aggressiveness of this is unknown. Um, but there were a number of programs created. The most famous is, is known as Stellar Wind. But this um, the surveillance program um, was not revealed for many years. Um, eventually, you know, we learn a lot about it from Edward Snowden, but there are glimmers of it before that. And um, so, yes, the overreach of the Patriot Act, um, again, in the name of security, is something that we still have to deal with um, to this day. And while the Patriot Act no longer exists, we have the Freedom Act, the, um, and it did pull back on some of these surveillance authorities that I've referred to. The fact is that there is still a much broader uh, authority for law enforcement to to search, surveil, um, and um, suspect and investigate um, uh, people in the United States than there was before the Patriot Act. Doesn't the president have a lot of latitude in keeping something secret or conversely making some public? Um, the president has a lot of latitude because he's president. And so you're getting to something that, um, you know, at the heart of all of these discussions is what are the limits of presidential powers? And what I would submit, what we've learned over the past two decades is that um, the powers of the president are determined in large part by the president, which is kind of what your question suggests. Yeah, I was wondering about Congress. Uh, what role uh, does Congress play in all of this? If if well, subtle tools require legislation, doesn't Congress have to pass it? Yes, and Congress needs to be. There has to. This is this is something that when you read this book, you know, I think what it makes you think. At least what it made me think when I was writing it was Congress needs to have added to its basket of what it needs to do. It it should not be allowed to pass laws that do not identify the the target of the law, the substance of the law, or the consequence of the law. And they have done this over and over and over in, in the name of national security. And the fact that there's no check on that is really rather remarkable. The same thing goes for um for the Department of Justice. The fact that there is no check on authorities that are made and that can be secretly authorized, like torture, can you find something that's more, you know, egregious? Um, 
is um, is that we don't have the kind of oversight and stop gaps that we need either in the creating of the law. See, there are two versions of creating the law, one in Congress and one essentially in the Department of Justice. So a lack of accountability is a subtle tool. Lack of accountability is the result and the goal of subtle tools. Lack of accountability is what what they what they create. Um, if you get rid of the subtle tools, if you tame the subtle tools, if you um, forbid the subtle tools, that in and of itself is a form of accountability. Because if you are precise in what you say in your laws and how they can be applied and where the limits of their application is, then there isn't a built-in accountability if you go outside the parameters. If what you say when you're writing the law is, we're going to write this so that the parameters are not clear so that a president can do what he wants if he needs to do that, then getting accountability afterwards, as we've seen, is extremely difficult. Where have we seen accountability for the excesses of the war on terror? I'm I'm at a loss to see where, where we've seen any. Domestic surveillance, use of drones, the revolving door between Washington and corporate America all involve private business. Has business played a role in the development of subtle tools? The private sector has has played a role for sure. For example, in baked into the surveillance authorities is and this has changed over time has was in the beginning the the ability to go to an internet provider um yahoo for example and say you need to give us all of the records on this person um or this entity because of an investigation that we're doing into a, a national security investigation so um and and not all Businesses complied. They, some of them, um, stood up for their their rights not to do this, um, but they did that in a secret court in the Foreign Intelligence uh, Court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the the FISA court, um, and this has been an ongoing conversation essentially um, since the early part of the war uh, on terror. Well, Eric Prince's company, Blackwater, and other intelligence agency and military subcontractors were used in Iraq and Afghanistan. Weren't they used in part because they might be able to evade the kind of scrutiny that yes. the Pentagon, the CIA would get? Yes. And 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 the issue was raised a number of times um, also in Iraq, yes, um, and Afghanistan about, you know, how to hold them accountable. Should they be held accountable? Oh, but they're not government officials or government agencies. So how do we? Um, and, and again, you're right. It's all part of the fabric that needs to be um, rethought. Um, and and it's an easy way to get out of the limits of government is to pass the buck to um, to a private entity. And you're right, we've seen it. And, and does that also apply when uh, state and uh, federal government have privatized the management of some prisons? Could privatization be yes. a, a subtle tool there? Yeah, it, absolutely. It's passing the buck. It's passing the buck. It's just putting it into a different context because it's it's easier to put it out there. I'm glad you brought up the um, the privatized federal prisons. What goes on? You know, this is a little bit of of a different tact, but what goes on in the the private prisons? The amount of documentation the the country has been given about um, the trade off between making money and treating prisoners decently um, is is staggering. 
you don't have to dig very deep to see what's happened. And so the question of where does that accountability go and, 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 and what can we do to sort that out and make things more decent and, and fair to the imprisoned um, is, is another piece of this, yes. A debate continues over the course of our democracy since Donald Trump was elected and, and since the turmoil during and after the, the 2020 election. Could we, do you think that Trump altered the course of American democracy or did he accelerate changes that were already underway? I think he did both. I think he accelerated changes that were already underway um, by building on, uh, using these subtle tools as weapons. But I think he took it way further. And, and the most obvious example of that is his interference um, in the elections. And the and using all of these things that he he'd used before to that that had been used before these subtle tools um, to interfere with the election, starting with when I talk about bypassing processes and norms during the um, Obama administration, there was concern by a number of officials and experts that um, I mean, during the the George Bush administration, there was concern that there was going to be some kind of problem in the transition process to a new president. And so when Barack Obama came into office, there was a heightened concern for the fragility of the judicial process. And during the um, Obama years, there was a kind of a, a ramping up of of processes to protect the transition period. It was made much longer. Instead of starting when when um, a candidate got the nomination, it started months and in some pieces of the architecture a year before to start the transition process. Trump ignored all of these new rules and regulations that have been put into place and basically screwed screwed up the intentionally screwed up the transition process between um obama and himself and as you know um the funds were not re- released until late but it wasn't just that there are so many different incremental transfers of information that need to go from one uh um administration to the next um and there were there were worries about this for for two presidents before this and and he knew what he was doing that was that's what i mean about taking the subtle tool of bypassing norms and taking it to a new level not to mention all the things that we all know about in terms of trying to uh, command the courts to intervene in the election, which for the most part is a battle that he, which, you know, is a battle he lost, although it was a very robust battle, which um, Republican attorney generals got heavily involved in, um, but again, lost their attempt to subvert the election. But, um, you know, with each loss of an attempt to subvert the processes of American democracy, lessons are learned. And lessons are learned by both sides. They're learned by those who are 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 watching a democracy they care about fall apart and those who are want that democracy to work for them instead of for the country. And so this period of figuring out what lessons were learned from the attempt to subvert the election is extremely important in putting to rest the subtle tools. 
And my my guest is the author of a book called Subtle Tools, Karen L. Greenberg. Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, published by Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. It's streaming live at WBAI.org. The Subtle Tools are applied um, usually in a moment of crisis, but there are different kinds of crises. For example, there was the crisis after 9-11, which led perhaps to some overstepping uh, by President Bush at the time. But then uh, before this election, we had the whole business of a crisis of, of um, in, in the whole process of, of voting. And we have we, we wound up with even the the um, the post office changing policies in response to it. So uh, it doesn't matter whether the crisis is a real one or one that uh, some, that's being manufactured for political gain? Um, Was that too complicated a question? <laughs> no, I think it's a really good question. And I think the, the, the question is, um, is there a distinction? Um, not enough of a distinction, but I would also say that they're related. Um, you know, using national security for political gain in a crisis is still using it for political gain. You could manage a crisis without just wanting to get as much power as you can for agendas that are ancillary to the actual goal itself. The president didn't have to become more important than Congress beyond powers that Congress would given, let's say, for um, in the War Powers Act in, in declaring um uh, in declaring war, he, they they didn't have to um, succumb to this. Um, President um, Bush and his team did not have to ask for the powers they asked for. They did not have to change the laws um, uh, against torture. They did not have to institute a, a, a regime of indefinite detention. They did not have to create a kind of surveillance that was massive, warrantless, um, bulk surveillance. They didn't need to do all of those things. Um, they used national security as an excuse to get as much power as they could. And again, I come back to the 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 idea that unfortunately or fortunately, maybe in, in you know, some more idealistic um, uh, mindset, um, it we've what we've learned about the country is who the president is matters. And it's very hard to legislate around it, to create boundaries around it. Yes, we can try to impeach him, um, but but ultimately, the president has a tremendous amount of power. And when he wants to subvert checks and balances, he can. And so I think that's really the lesson of, of these past years is how do we, other than having somebody in office that says, I won't do that. I'm not going to abuse the power. Um, is that really what we're dependent upon as a country? When it suited them, have Democrats been as willing as Republicans to use subtle tools? Um, you know, in thinking about these post 9-11 presidents, um, Obama did not want to, to use them. Obama, as I said, you know, valued uh, transparency. Obama um, you know, saw himself as the erstwhile constitutional law professor. But Obama, as you know, if you read Obama's memoir, one of the really interesting things in it is a sense that he didn't feel like he always could get what he wanted, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the, the military, for example. Um, so, yes, I think, you know, good intentions can be part of it. 
Obama wanted to close Guantanamo. Um, um, good intentions can be part of it, but good intentions um, aren't enough. We have just two minutes left, but I want to address your title, which says democracy is not simply failing or fading, but that it's being dismantled right. intentionally in some cases. Yes. Democracy does not allow um, the powerful to get increasingly powerful. So Demo- that's why we're seeing this, these efforts to disenfranchise many voters? Yes. Yes. This idea that we can mess with process and norms and that we can, that we, that the, that powers that be, um, can succeed at it is a, is a very dangerous, uh, lesson and it's the road we're on and it's time to, to, to stop it in, in all ways that rely on, um, and how do we stop it? We, we, we insist that Congress create laws that have, that are specific, that oversight is not something that we just brush aside and that accountability actually occurs um, in a way that stops trends that are destructive to uh, the, the, the rule of law and, and justice. Good luck with this, Congress. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Karen J. Greenberg is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham, an international studies fellow at the New, at New America and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, her latest book is Subtle Tools, this, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, published by Princeton University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me and for all those great questions. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. Uh, you can access our archives of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopateAtWBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content because WBAI depends 100% on listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to London Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by giving, by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to ensure that this historic station, the only one on New York Radio that's entirely listener-supported, will continue to be alive and thriving with your tax-deductible donation. And uh, I hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, $10, $15, $20, whatever you feel comfortable with. It helps us to plan for the future and also to not have to worry each month about whether we can make our budget. To everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of London Lopez at Large, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Washington Post economics editor Damian Paletta will discuss his book, Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic That Changed History. We'll see you then.